From MZ Studios in Dallas, Texas, you're listening to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. Welcome back to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. You're stuck with me this week. Coach is on assignment somewhere. Maybe he's in Indian Wells watching all the tennis action or maybe doing his real job coaching tennis, something like that. But he's not with us, so only my voice you get to hear for however long this lasts. It's going to feel like an eternity, I'm sure. But uh, I'll do my best to get you up on all the action that's happened. It's actually one of the most exciting weeks in tennis with uh, that Indian Wells tournament going on because we don't really get the big names in America anymore at the tournament so we've got pretty much all the big names are are playing in california and and what's interesting is they all uh play singles and doubles which you almost never see anymore even in the grand slam so that's what i'm excited about and they actually show all the matches on tv singles and doubles too so we'll talk about some of that and we'll talk about some of the uh changes that are upcoming in 2019 in grand slams which i think is kind of uh interesting and what I love about being by myself is I'm always right. I don't have to argue with anyone, so you guys have to uh, have to go along with whatever I decide to say, and he's not here to contradict me, so it's perfect. But the first thing that I, uh, one thing we referenced last week is, and we've actually talked about it a few times, but Indian Wells always seems to get all the best players in doubles. You know, they've gotten, you know, Fetters play doubles there, and it all seems to play pretty often. Uh, you know, Warinka, Serena, and Venus, they all... Seen to play, and we've always mentioned, uh, sort of wondered why, and hypothesized. Well, this year there's actually a reason that they're all going to play. So they offered a one million dollar bonus to any player who wins singles and doubles. So men or women or both. Um, and and I don't know how many players that's going to entice because really the players that have a chance to win that are not really playing for the money anymore. I don't know if Federer needs that million dollars. He's got about seventy or eighty million dollars a year. So I don't know if the hundred million million is going to entice him or the one million is going to entice him, but. But for some of these other players that, you know, they're in the top of the rankings for both, mainly the the ladies, you know, it may be an extra enticement for them to really take it seriously. And and I think anything that gets more players to play doubles is 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 a positive. And so I decided to look back. The last time that a man has won singles and doubles in this tournament was 1991, Jim Courier. So they're not really taking a huge risk. I think they should offer $5 million and really, you know, make it exciting and make generate more interest, which maybe as they, the more they do it, if they realize they don't have to pay it out, they'll be more apt to uh, to offer more money. But so far, you know, we saw in this tournament already, we had Dimitrov and Del Potro play together, which didn't work out so well. But but uh, it was some new players that you don't normally see. And you, you kind of see why these guys don't play doubles because even from personal experience, I know that it takes a lot of effort to be really the top of your game, singles and doubles, and it's just not enough hours in the day to divide your practice time. And then you got to have continuity with a partner. I mean, that there's a there's a value on that. And so these guys, even though they're they're incredible players, you just don't see Nadal is one of the few that's had success in doubles, even though his game is really totally geared towards singles. Federer's had some because he's got the big serve and the and the net game, but but I mean really if you put the top ten singles players on tour, I don't think they would finish necessarily in the top five in doubles because they uh you know, it's just a whole different game and having the right partner and and going deep in a singles tournament too is not going to uh, be beneficial for doubles. So it'll be interesting to see. I hope hopefully there's some players that are still in the mix toward the end that'll make it interesting and make uh, make that a possibility because I do think that 
is going in the right direction. And I think that maybe the Grand Slams will take uh, take note of that and try to figure out a way to get more of those big names playing, I hope. But, uh, but yeah, Dimitrov and Del Potra lost quickly. Uh, you got Isner and Sock playing, which they play a fair amount of doubles. Um, you know, the Lopez brothers playing together. The Zverev brothers played the Bryan brothers, which... I was curious, you know, when that's happened, you don't see two brothers, you don't see two brothers playing doubles together and even professional tennis players. So to have two sets of brothers playing each other and they went to a third set tie break. So that was exciting. And, you know, I really think that this, this all leads into the same thing, which is this, the Indian Wells is just the most fan friendly tournament of the year. And I think they've really figured out that that's really the way to be successful is if you make the events, you know, geared toward the fans, you're going to get more more viewers, you're going to have more you know, people more excited about it, promoted. I hear about it, I hear about it every every day at my club, and I'm in Dallas. But people just talk about how they want to go to Indian Wells or how they're going to Indian Wells. They're really excited about watching it on TV. So it's just they really, they definitely generate the interest up to the Grand Slam level, and I would say even more than you know maybe the Australian or even the French, which we don't hear about as much here, partly because of the time difference, but also just I think it's just more top of mind, and you get a lot of American players, of course. So leading into that, we saw a ton of American women doing really well in this tournament. Um, but it's not the ones you would expect. Madison Keys lost early. Uh, we did have the return of Serena, which I'll get into more later. But so far, there's... And, you know, one thing that makes these tournaments bigger here is that the American players, obviously. So we have six ladies, and I'm recording on Sunday. So by the time you hear this, there'll probably be uh, one or two less. But But we've got, you know... We've actually got seven ladies that Americans are still in the tournament. And what's funny is some of the Americans that have lost have lost to other Americans, and it's not the players that you'd expect to win. So I've seen a trend the last few years of players just, you know, having a big breakout tournament and beating a really good player, beating two really good players and making it deep. And then you think, oh, man, this is going to be the next big player. And then they just kind of fade away. So we've got Dolhide and Collins, who I'm – I feel like I'm pretty knowledgeable about tennis and I got a podcast and teach tennis for a living, but I hadn't heard of either of those two players going into this. And, um, you know, they got pretty big wins over, over well-known players. Collins beat Madison Keys, uh, and Dolhide has had a couple wins already. So, and then Vickery, who I've heard of a little bit, but not really at the top level. She beat Muguruza, uh, in a great match. So you got three wild card ladies that are still in the tournament as Americans so that that's exciting but again I guess I have more of a long-term view of that which is, is exciting for what they're doing in this tournament it makes the tournament more exciting but will we actually see them you know at the U.S. Open or at Wimbledon or doing anything you know we kind of saw Jennifer Brady come along and and get some big wins and Kayla Day and and uh, CeCe Bellis and all these players but then you know they don't really they kind of seem to plateau once I don't know if it's because they get success and they get complacent or the other players get, you know, kind of figure out their game um, and they have more videotape to study and they get more coaching against them and or it's just the pressure or injuries. Or, I mean, there's a, there's a myriad of factors, but but I think we're still waiting as Americans for the next big you know, player. And even though Sloane Stevens, you know, won the Open, she has done nothing outside of that. So I don't think you can say that she's necessarily the next big player. And Madison Keys is had inconsistent results. Coco is had inconsistent results. So... We need to see someone that's consistently contending for titles and Grand Slams before I'm ready to to uh, to see Venus and Serena fade away. Because as of now, they're still the top two. If I have faith in any two players to win a tournament or go deep in a tournament, it's going to be the Williams sisters, who ironically have to play each other in the third round of Indian Wells. So after 
10 years of not playing and all the controversy of the tournaments against us and you know we don't want to play there and and all that stuff now they're playing each other because Serena came into the tournament unseated so by the time this airs you've already seen that match probably and hopefully it was a another classic as they've had so many but it's it's always kind of sad when they play each other that early because it's a match you would rather see later you know I don't get into watching them that much because they play really similarly and I just I'd rather see contrasting styles like Misha and and Sasha's Varev, I'd love to see those two play because they play so differently from each other with Misha going to the net and everything and, and Sasha being more the baseline power player. That would be more interesting, you know, tactical. But when you've got two, you know, the two sisters who play almost identical styles, which it makes sense because they learn together and they were taught the same way. It's not really that compelling of a matchup for me as much, but uh, especially, and also because Serena has been pretty dominant in that rivalry, especially as of the last few years. But needless to say, one of those players will be in the round of 16, and they'll probably be the, the last American, as they're used to doing um, in all the tournaments. So that's going to be something to look forward to. I haven't been too... I haven't been disappointed with how Serena's been playing, but I've been... You know, kind of have guarded optimism with her. We saw some unseated players like Sharapova and Azarenka go out early. Um, you know, unseated meaning they were their their ranking is down, but they... Grand Slam champions, you know, they're coming back, so they obviously have had some success, so they need to uh, need to get it back. But, but what I mean by that is they haven't been able to get it back, and they've had months on the tour now, and we're really just not seeing them reaching their former level of greatness. So it makes me wonder if Serena, if we're all just taking for granted the fact that she's going to come back and win. And, and truthfully, she had a, a more serious reason for missing. You know, Sharapova had was suspended and, and Azarenka had some personal issues. So they still had the ability to practice, you know, that whole time where Serena was out for months when she was pregnant. And then after, after the fact, so she may not have hit a ball for six months. So that's to me a lot harder to bounce back from. Whereas Sharapova really could have just come back and she should have just picked up right where she left off with all the practice uh, time that she had and, and time to heal up and everything. So it just makes me wonder. I think, uh, we got a little spoiled with Federer coming back from injury and just and just picking up right where he left off or even better and thinking that Serena was going to do the same thing. Well, as of this recording, she's won two matches, but they've been really tight matches and not uh, not the Serena we are used to seeing. I'll put it that way. So if she's able to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, if she's able to win these you know matches against stout competition, because this is you know, by far the the best competition she's going to get outside of a grand slam. So if she's able to go deep in this tournament, it, I think it is encouraging, but, um, but I think it's, it's just, uh, it's going to be a ways where we can really tell, you know, how far she has to go or how, how, um, how long it's going to be before she's back. So I think it is exciting to see her back on the court. You know, we saw Tiger Woods today contending in a golf tournament. You see Serena back on. So it was great to see these players that, uh, have kind of been gone for a while now coming back and even and it's it's we're flashing back to five years ago in tennis we've got Federer Serena Venus you know all doing well and now we got Sharapova back so I think this this was what I was most looking forward to about 2018 was all these players coming back um and and just seeing if they could do it I mean if we could get all these players playing well at the same time that's when we're really going to be back to kind of level of tennis we need to be I think it's been for the last six months it's been it's been kind of a uh, 
a struggle for us as fans to get behind anybody besides Federer because he's been so dominant. And that's what Coach and I, Coach, I'll say it for you, weakest era in the history of tennis. He's not here, so I'll have to say it. But but um, you know, going into this turn with a men's draw, it's probably the first tournament we've had in a long time with Federer, Djokovic, and Nishikori all playing. And actually Raonic, too. So we've got a lot of these players that have been out, Warinka, that have been out for a long time. And I do want to see those guys play each other, not because I think if Federer beats Djokovic, it means anything now, but I want to see, you know, if they play now and Djokovic loses, you know, 7-5-6-4, well, that tells me in three to four months, that's going to be a really tough match for Federer. If Federer wins, you know, 6-2-6-3, I think that's a match that maybe we never see Djokovic recapture the, the edge there. So I think that's why I want to see these guys go deep I don't want to see him win a round or two and then lose because that doesn't that really doesn't tell me anything because they're going to play three, you know, unranked or lower ranked players. And obviously if they lose to those players that tells you they got a ways to go, but we've seen enough in Nishikori now. He won a challenger, you know, he won another tournament. He's been uh he's had a ton of match play. So I think he you know, he should be pretty close. Djokovic we haven't seen at all. Orinka hasn't done anything in any tournament. So I think, you know, those guys got a little ways to go. Murray hasn't even come back yet. So I don't see any reason why the next three Grand Slams we should have anybody even in the conversation with Federer. Nadal would be the one just because he's got so much success and he's, and he's you know, got the shortest time off. So I feel like it almost takes however many weeks off the court you are, that's how many weeks it takes to get back. So, you know, Serena's been off, what, probably eight to ten months it's going to take her probably eight to ten months to get it back. Um, and same with, uh, for everybody but Federer, it seems. And same with Djokovic. I mean, he's been off, you know, six to eight months. It's going to take him six to eight months. So even when Murray, if Murray does make it back by Wimbledon, I don't think he'll be a contender in the slam until next year's Australian. So I think it's just um, it's just a matter of getting these players back, getting to see them, you know, seeing the players that we love and seeing them contend and beat some players and if we don't, if they lose to these these other players that have been on the tour the whole time, that's fine too. Because we need these players to make the next step. I think we talked about this uh, last week, but but I heard a stat that we have not had a Grand Slam champion that was born after 1990 uh, on the men's tour, which is which is to me insane. I mean, the women have probably had 10, uh, maybe more. I mean, and, and, and the women do better younger on the tour anyway, but not, not to that extreme. I mean, it's pretty crazy, so... I'm still waiting for some of these players. Even to win a Masters 1000 would be a big deal because they have been dominated by the Big Four as much as the Grand Slams have. So if we could get somebody to break out in this tournament, you have Dimitrov, Sock, Kyrgios, um, Isner. <coughs> and I said Jack Sock without laughing there because he does have the potential to to win some of these things if he just uh, can string together a couple good matches. So if we can get some guys like that that are up and coming, then it'll get more excitement for when those guys do come back to think, hey, you're not just going to come back and be right where you left off. You're going to come back and you're going to have to get by some really tough opponents that have that have moved up in their in your spot. And they they like being on that top three, top four, top five. And plus, we've just got to, we've got to see what's going to be for the next 10 years on the tour. There's got to be some players that are, that are, that the, pat, the torch is being passed to. So Federer can't play forever, Nadal can't play forever, and Djokovic and Murray are, aren't playing now, so they're already, you know, off or Djokovic just came back. So I think it's it's just a matter of time before we start seeing consistent results from somebody. It's just a matter of who it's going to be. And I think 
you know, this this tournament will be a, a good uh, barometer <coughs> of who that's going to be. So hopefully we will uh, we'll see some of those young versus old, the upcoming uh, players kind of, uh, you know, putting a challenge together. But anyway, one thing I wanted to uh, discuss about this uh, tournament that we haven't really talked about is just how um, how the uh, the doubles draw and the uh, singles draw coincide. <coughs> Excuse me, they've got a uh, they've made this tournament so long; it's almost like a grand slam, and so they've got to alternate days. That's part of the reason that one million dollar bonus is there because most players when they're in a tournament they don't want to play a match every single day. You know, the ladies are used to doing it. The men haven't done it, uh, don't typically do it in Grand Slam, so they're kind of, for 10, 11 days straight, having to play a match every single day. So I think it's uh, it's interesting to see. We kind of see the endurance level. We kind of see the conditioning come in, and it's warmer weather, so that's why I'm uh, I'm excited to see that that conditioning part being part of it because every a match every other day, two out of three sets, for the men is is no issue. I mean, and that's so much easier than a normal tournament. And even for the ladies, they're not used to having a day off between matches. So it has that Grand Slam feel, but it doesn't... Uh, but without the three out of five element, <coughs> it makes it so much easier for the guys to do it. And that's why, more so than the Grand Slams, they're always going to get players in the doubles, um, men and women. And, and we add in that $1 million bonus, it's even better. But anyway, one of the things that uh, that I want to get into next segment is something new and exciting coming to the tour in 2019. So stay tuned. You can hear all about it. It's time to join the revolution. Go to our website, tennisrevolutionpodcast.com to get the latest episodes, email us your questions and comments, or give us show ideas. Welcome back. Yeah, so we have some exciting things upcoming in 2019 and uh it doesn't involve a coach he's not here to talk about it but i'm going to uh do my best to run through some of the things and and hopefully uh i'll give my opinion on it, and we'll touch back again uh touch back is that a phrase holler back i don't know something we'll we'll touch base there you go we'll touch base next week about uh what his opinion is on it but basically there was a board meeting this week or last week about all the Grand Slam tournaments in 2019, which I was pretty impressed that they were able to get a consensus on anything with the Grand Slams because they're all different organizations. But they had a meeting, and they decided on a few changes for 2019. And some of them, you know, you wouldn't be surprised. They've been they've been talking about for a while, but I'm going to run through those real quick and just and just talk about how I think that's going to impact you as the viewer and, and the players, and more importantly, the, the competitive balance of a, of a tournament, which I think is always the most important. So to me, the most the most um, impactful thing they've changed is that, that from now on, every Grand Slam is going to only have 16 seeds. I say from now on that starting with the Australian Open January 19, uh, 2019, but they're only going to have 16 seeds. Uh, and so it was about 10 or 12 years ago, maybe even longer than that, that all the Grand Slams went to 32 seeds. And so you always have 128 players. You know, A bunch of those are qualifiers, but you have 128 players 
And the idea behind the 32 seeds was that all the best players would not play each other until the third round of the tournament, which is great. So that means the first two rounds, number one, you've got almost all the best players still in the tournament after two rounds. So you've made it through four days of a Grand Slam, and you've you've kept all the big players in the tournament for the most part. Obviously, you get, no matter how many, you can seat 100 players, you're going to get upsets, but just like in the NCAA tournament and all that, but you're going to get upsets. But the, the, the number of upsets were fewer after they did the, uh, the 32 seeds. And then you're like this turn we talked about, and, you know, Maria and Vika and Serena are unseated, but they're going to be unseated no matter what, because they've been injured and they've been off the tour. So that, that doesn't really change anything. But when you move down to 16 seeds, that means conceivably in the first round of the tournament, you could have the number one player in the world playing the number 17 player in the world, which you know, to me, just is not, it makes more compelling first round matches, yes, but it makes, you know, your top players more vulnerable and also, you know, as a tournament director, you want the best players in the tournament late. So I'm I'm pretty surprised they changed this. Uh, and I was looking at the Indian Wells draw and I just thought, okay, well, who's the 17, you know, who are the big seeds, 17 through 32? So you got Kyrgios is the 17 seed. So Nick Kyrgios could play any any of the top 16 seeds first round if this was a Grand Slam draw. So you could have a Kyrgios versus Federer, a Kyrgios versus Nadal, which would be an amazing match, but but you don't want to see that in the first round of a Grand Slam. That's that's just a wasted match because that means one of those guys is going to be out with 12 days or 13 days left in the tournament. Like we saw Halep and Sharapova played this year first round of a Grand Slam. But again, Sharapova was unseated, so that that just happens. But But for me to have 16 seeds and then have the potentially the 17 player and and to be even more extreme it could be 17 could play one and 18 could play two and 19 could play three i mean you could have every top you know player between 17 and 32 playing a seated player first so i think it uh it also means that the seated players will not play each other until the fourth round instead of the third round so i mean it could make for really amazing first second round matches but it could also make for a lot more boring you know third round matches because by then, you know, the seeds still aren't, still aren't playing each other. So you're not seeing those big matchups until the fourth round. So in some ways, it's delaying the biggest matchups even longer. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, a lot of it is random. And, and the rankings, you know, are not that exact anyway with players being injured and, you know, just the ebbs and flows of the rankings. But but I think when you, uh, when you start doing that, you've got a... Uh, you've got a a big risk at uh, alienating, you know, some of your audience and, and people might say, well, you know, why do I need to watch, you know, the first couple of rounds if the, all the seeds are playing each other later. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, to me, it's pretty, it's a pretty radical move, which is why I'm surprised about it. Uh, I mean, because think about it. If you just made the whole tournament unseated, let's say there were no seeds and you had, you know, Federer and Nadal got matched up in the first round. I mean, that would be horrible for the tournament. So this is the same concept. It's just a scaled down version of that concept. So, I mean, imagine first round you got Federer Kyrgios. We had Raonic was the 32 seed in this tournament. So he could have played, you know, Djokovic first round or Nishikor. I mean, it just, it, to me, it puts your your biggest players more at risk. So you're actually more likely to lose your biggest players in the first round. And, um, you know, it makes the third round matches less compelling on average because you're not having seed versus seed in the third round. You're having seeds mathematically cannot play each other till the fourth round so you know I, I don't understand what the logic behind it was i'll have to you know do some research we'll have to get a grand slam uh, board member on the podcast and figure out what the reason was but i mean it's 
it's going to be interesting. And, and same with the women's. I mean, you've got a lot of really good players that are ranked in the six, 17 to 32 range. And so I'm sure they're not happy about it too, because it helps, it hurts their, you know, case when they've got to play a top 16 player earlier in the draw. So I really, you know, we won't get a true feel for how this works until probably, you know, three or four slams. So maybe at the end of 2019, but I think it's, it's a pretty interesting move that I think it's, and I think it is definitely going to have an impact on how the tournament plays out. And in some ways, you know, it's, you know, you're going to have, I mean, Federer could have to, we talked about one versus 17 and I haven't even thought about this until just this moment, but Federer could have to play 17 first round and then 18 second round, then 19 third round. And then he's got to play a top 16 player for that. So you could, you could actually have to play eight or seven, excuse me, seven top 32 players to win the grand slam, to win a grand slam. So, I mean, that's, that's a pretty tall And Whereas another guy could have to play a guy that's 150, 120 and 140. So, I mean, it's, that's why I say I'm not really liking this from a competitive aspect. Uh, and I think it's this, this, I am 99.9% certain this doesn't happen to grand Sims, but I think it's also going to lend itself to more talk about, you know, unfair, you know, draw making procedures. Oh, how did, you know, how did this person end up against this person? And, and that's just the thing when you get, you know, when you don't seed as many players, that's what happens. I mean, a lot of people would like it to be seated like the NCAA tournament where one plays the worst ranked player, which, which, you know, if you ranked every player in the draw, it'd be 128. So one plays 128 and then two plays 127 and three plays 126. And I'm not in favor of that, but if you did that, you're going to be much more likely for all your top players to advance. Just like the NCAA tournament. If you get one, you know, one team that's not, you know, highly ranked that advances to the Sweet 16, you're doing pretty well. I mean, it just doesn't happen that often where you get more than one. So I think it's, you know, if if a Grand Slam could make it where the top 16 seeds made the fourth round, they would be thrilled. Um, but this makes that a lot more unlikely, I have to say. So that's why I'm not uh, I'm not sure what their motivation is. I mean, they're they're most they're, most of the decisions like this are money driven. So I'm thinking it's got to be about generating more interest in the early rounds. Maybe, you know, you're looking for you're going to have more big matchups early on. So maybe you get a night session match, like I said, with Kyrgios and Nadal or or Raonic and Fed. You know, you get you're going to have more potential for first or second round clashes. But that really hasn't been an issue. I mean, this year we had we had. Tiafo and Federer, which was a great five-set match. We had Sharapova and Halep, which was an incredible match. I mean, I don't feel like we're lacking for for entertainment in the early rounds of tournaments. In fact, I like the early rounds of tournaments because you see these David versus Goliath matchups that we haven't, uh, that we, you know, the people we don't normally get to see. Uh, you know, now I don't need to see the same 12, 16 players through the whole 14 days of the tournament. I like these early round you know, matchups with, with the unknowns playing the big seeds and maybe a couple of them pull the upsets and all that. So keep an eye on that. And, um, you know, I'm kind of interested to see, it won't start till next, uh, January, but that's the main change or the other changes they had this rule they've been talked about. They did in the next gen, uh, final is the shot clock. So I really want to see, I, I'm not going to lie. I didn't watch the next gen finals, but I really, cause it doesn't really, it didn't really count for an actual tournament, but what I really want to see in action that I have not seen is a shot clock. So they're going to be a 25 second shot clock at the grand slams, meaning that when that point ends, they press a button and the clock starts. 
just like in basketball, as soon as you as soon as you possess the ball, the clock starts. And from that point on, you've got 25 seconds to, you know, start the next point. Now what I have not what I am not sure of is if let's say you've tossed the ball to serve and that time runs out, does that mean you lose the point? Does that mean you lose the serve? Does it not does it not make an actual sound so it doesn't matter? Is it at the, the you know umpire's discretion? So all those to me are issues that need to be consistently ironed out, you know, in order for it to work. And I mean some of our some of these grandson players are gonna have a hard time with twenty five seconds. And I know this isn't part of the rule, but I'm sorry, if you have a twenty five thirty shot point, you know, give them an extra five seconds. Especially when it's Australia and it's ninety eight degrees and throw another shrimp on the bobby, as the uh, coach would say. It's it's just too hot for twenty five seconds for every point. I get the concept and twenty five you know, serve and they miss the return. Twenty five seconds, like that's no issue. Twenty five seconds is just plenty, especially when you got people getting the balls for you and and keeping score for you and all that. I mean, you're not really doing anything except walking from one side of the court to the other. Don't need to towel off after you know you hit an ace or after the guy missed a return. So, I I understand the concept behind it, uh, behind that. I just am curious how it's going to be applied, and you know if you if you miss, like I said, if you you get buzzed and you miss the time, is that I'm assuming that counts as a fault. So then you got a second serve. If it have you know it's never going to happen a second serve. You don't take twenty five seconds between serves. So it's really just taking away a first serve. And I'm curious, you know how. I mean, that's a less. What's funny is that's not as harsh of a penalty as it was before. It was just never, never uh, enforced before. It was always twenty-five seconds, but before it was the first one was a warning, and second time was loss of point. Well, I think I've seen loss of point maybe twice in watching five thousand tennis matches. So I mean, that was a harsher losing a point is a much harsher penalty than losing a serve on the second offense. So. And what'll be interesting is if the players can see this clock and they see it's at five seconds or they rush to the line, you know, I do think there is a little bit of drama involved there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that uh if that gets enforced properly, number one, and if it actually makes a difference with the pace of play. I have a big issue in sports, you know, nowadays. One of my biggest issues actually is with why we're trying to make every sport shorter. So baseball is constantly constantly trying to speed up the game. Football, they're talking about speeding up the game. Tennis, same thing. Golf. I mean, I understand we're all busy and we've all got other things to do, but most of us are watching on DVR anyway or online, so we don't need to. We can fast forward what we want to fast forward anyway. And secondly, for the for the fans that are there as a as a event organizer or venue or stadium, I want the fans there as long as possible. So I don't understand how making a tennis match an hour and a half is going to benefit anyone, you know, at in terms of the venue holder. You know, if it makes tennis more, more televised, you know, more available for people, that that obviously is a positive. But so far, I don't think any of the Grand Slams are struggling with ratings, viewership, attendance, revenue. So I mean, if you're shortening every match, you, you know, there's only so many matches you have in a day. If you're shortening every match. That means that the day is shorter, and the people are there not as they're not there as long, which means to me less revenue. So I don't understand you know the other the other benefit behind that. I haven't heard people you know tune out because a match is too long. Now they may tune in and out because you know they want to see, but but they're going to do that anyway. It's you know if you're only interested in the five, fifth set, whether the first four sets are three hours or an hour and a half, I think you're still going to fast forward to the fifth set. You know because you're just that's a casual fan 
And then by only them tuning in the fifth set, you're actually going to keep them a shorter amount of time because the fifth set's going to be a lot shorter, you know, with some of these new rules they're trying to do. So I'll have to ask Coach. Call in. Remind me uh, to ask Coach next week my, his opinion on that. But, um, yeah, that's the other thing. You know, the other rule that they've implemented, and they've already started to implement this this year, but it's uh, they're going to penalize players for withdrawing late. If you withdraw, you know, less than you know, 48 hours before the term, basically after the draws are made, if you withdraw, then you are only going to receive a 48, I'm sorry, 50% of the prize money you would have received otherwise. And then the person who fills your spot gets the other 50%. And then if you retire, which has been the big issue, the, the, the withdrawal is late. I, in fact, I don't even know if you, when you withdrew late, that you got any money. So that's actually a surprise to me. I thought once you, I thought if you withdrew from the tournament, you got nothing. Um, but apparently once you're in the draw, you still get paid, which is kind of crazy. Um, so I can see why they changed that. But then the other thing now is if you retire and, and you play below professional standards in quotations, that's what it said below professional standards, they have the ability to fine you up to the amount you made for that round. So if you made, you know, $30,000 for, for losing the first round, six Oh, six, one, six Oh, or six Oh four Oh, and you quit they have the ability to say, you know what, you're getting fined $30,000. Um, now, what they do with that money, I don't know, but but they're trying to eliminate these people that are just these people knowing they can't compete, Dmitry Tursunov, and showing up for a tournament and losing and taking that big check. And I mean, there's basically their players are making their living off losing four first-round Grand Slams. I mean, that's... It was over $100,000 to lose four first round in Grand Slams. So, you know, they're trying to take that away where you show up with really no intention or ability to win and and still collect all that money. And it's not even ability to win, effort, you know, because there are plenty of wild cards that get in that really don't have a chance to win or the skill level to win. But they earned their spot and they competed to their highest abilities and just were overmatched. So that, you know, that those people are still going to get paid. It's the players that jump out with an injury and they know this is what we're talking about mainly is injuries. If they jump out there with an injury and they know that they can't finish the match or certainly not would, would not finish the tournament, that they're going out there and playing. And, and I don't even think it should be retirements because if you go out and lose 6-0, you should have retired. For the sake of us, please don't make us watch that. But, you know, like I, I think the way they phrase it is great. It's professional standards you have to basically show number one effort and number two, you know, show that you had the actual capacity to compete at that level. And if you didn't, then you shouldn't have been out there. Someone else that, you know, could have played that was a lucky loser that was ranked in the hundreds or two hundreds. They should have been out there in your place and they would have made it number one, more entertaining for the fans. Number two actually made that person that they're, they're playing earn their spot in the second round. And number three, just been, you know, an overall better competitor. I don't think uh, that's an unreasonable, an unreasonable thing. And it's funny because in other sports you wouldn't even see players step out there, but they're not paid per per game. You know, if LeBron gets hurt and decides he's not playing tomorrow night, or his doctor decides or whatever, he still gets paid. So tennis, we don't have that option. We have to. It's 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 pay for play. You've got to be out there to get paid. So I mean, I I don't have a problem with the players that have done it so far, because that's just them playing by the rules and and. And a lot of players are scraping by to make a living, but, but now the um, 
they're not going to let that happen anymore, and rightfully so. So I think, I, I think that will make better, you know, matchups in the tournaments too. You're not having players just jump out there and knowing they can't compete. And we've already seen, you know, fewer retirements in Grand Slam just since this has been in place, or even since it's been discussed, because I think it is there is some level of of shame involved, and 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 you know, I think there are other ways to to get you know prize money and income level up, you know, without doing this. So I think players shouldn't need to do this to get to make a living. And I think as the challenger prize monies get higher, first round prize monies get higher. But I mean, what I love about tennis is you have to earn it. You have to win to get paid. And I don't even think they should really get paid as a, just to compete in the first round, truthfully, Uh, because a lot of players got wild cards that they didn't even, they didn't even necessarily earn to get in. I mean, they got there was some reason they got the wild card, but it's not always valid, and you can tell that by the scores that they the wild cards often have. Obviously, Collins and Dolhide from the uh, Indian Wells have proven that they uh, that they deserve their wild cards, but that doesn't always happen. But again, they've won two rounds each, so they should get paid. They should get paid for the third round, just like everybody else. But I'm saying a wild card, especially, it just shows up and plays and gets trounced. They I don't know that they deserve to make you know twenty five thirty thousand dollars. So anyway, those are the main changes. They've got the, you got the shot clock, you got the sixteen seeds, and you got the withdrawal penalty. I'm in favor of the shot clock if it's executed correctly. I'm in favor of the withdrawal penalty because uh, I do think that it's about getting more matches on the court. It's about getting more competitive matches on the court, and it's about rewarding the players for their effort. Um, and um, and it's about really just getting the top players that week that are available. You know, Djokovic. If Djokovic goes out and flames out early and has to retire, I don't think he should get paid. He's not going to care about the $30,000, but it, you know, it's other players should have been in that slot that could have competed at that level if he is not at that level. So, you know, I don't think uh, it matters what your status is or ranking is. You know, if Pete Sampras came back, sorry, coach, and next week and played and lost 6-0-6-0, he shouldn't get paid. He got a wild card, so didn't earn the spot in the tournament. Got it based on notoriety. You know, it, it, you know, so it's, it's, to me, it's nothing to do with who it is or, or, um, you know, even their score necessarily. To me, it's about, did they deserve to be there? You know, were they competitive and did they get maximum effort? You know, to me, those are the three things. And so I think that's a step in the right direction. But anyway, really hard to talk this long without anybody else to listen to you, but I did it. Hopefully you guys were all listening. Coach can come back and correct me on all my mistakes uh, next week. But we have another week of Indian Wells to look forward to. And then we have uh, glorious Miami after that. So I hope you guys are all enjoying tennis. For those that are in the warmer climates, you probably haven't gotten back on the court yet, which means go back and listen to all our old podcasts. Maybe you'll learn a few things. And and maybe you have some disputes you want to email us about. And we can talk about that the next show. The next time I'm by myself, I can address some listener emails like I've done before. So feel free to send those in and subscribe if you have that option on iTunes and any other platform. I know you do. He's not here to make me name them all. Stitcher, I always seem to remember. Google Play. Got a few of those. Tell your friends about the podcast. And as always, thanks for joining the revolution. Revolution.